I know that it's Super Bowl Sunday today, and I uh, got a Packers jersey for my birthday. Donald Driver, one of my favorites of all time. And I'm just sad that I don't get to wear it while the Packers are playing in the Super Bowl, because they're not. And I know that can be a distracting thing with the Super Bowl today, and uh, there's probably a lot of other important things going on in your lives. So I wanted to give you all an out this morning for the sermon, okay? I want to give you an excuse maybe to, to, you know, shut down your ears or maybe just walk out, maybe go take a nap, get an early lunch. But all you have to do is meet four simple criteria, okay? Do we, are we agreed on that? If you meet these four simple criteria, you can just, you know, I'll see you next Sunday, all right? Okay, so one, if you never struggle to worship God from a thankful heart, you can leave. Two, if you never struggle to serve God from a thankful heart. Three, if you never struggle to live out your faith. And then four, if you never sin and you don't know anybody that sins, then again, goodbye, I'll see you next Sunday. But, <laughs> but for the rest of us, let's open our Bibles to Luke 14 in verses 1 through 19, because if you, Luke 17, sorry, Luke 17, 1 through 19, because if you didn't, if you didn't meet those criteria, then you need to hear what Jesus has to say this morning. Again, Luke 17, <laughs> verses 1 through 19. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank his servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Oh, Father, where else would we go? And where else can we go but to Christ for the words of eternal life? Father, we need your help this morning and the help of your spirit to hear these words of Jesus. We need your help for them to pierce into our hearts and to convict us of sin. We need your help to have these words cause us to run to Jesus. Father, we're helpless apart from you. So work in us by your word. Work in us and transform us and change us more into the image of Christ our Savior, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Wouldn't it be just really, really nice if we weren't sinners? Wouldn't that be great? I've heard it said that ministry would be really easy if it wasn't for all of the sinners. But even think about parenting. Wouldn't parenting be just fantastic if your kids obeyed every word that you said with joy and gladness as they ran upstairs to fold their laundry or to make their bed? And wouldn't it be great if you never sinned against your kids? Wouldn't it be great if you had a heart always that loved Jesus more than it loved your sin? Wouldn't that just be fantastic? And what's really great is that isn't just some hopeless pipe dream for Christians, because that is something that we are looking forward to in the day that Christ returns. We are looking forward to the day of glorification when we're conformed into the image of Jesus perfectly, and we live without sin in ourselves, and we live without sin in our interactions with others, and we can worship God from a true and loving heart. What a day that will be. But that's not the world that we live in currently, is it? And we know that. All we need to do is take 10 seconds and think about anything that we have done over the past two days, and we'll recognize that we live in a sinful world with fallen, sinful hearts. This morning, we're going to be looking at four words of Jesus for disciples. And the first word is sin, and the reality of sin. Jesus gives his disciples in verses 1 through 4 instruction about living in a community, a community of faith with the reality of sin. So look with me to verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. I think the ESV does an okay job translating this. It totally carries the idea, temptations to sin are sure to come. In the Greek, it literally would read, it is impossible for temptations to sin not to come. And in English, we just don't like double negatives, so they translate it over as temptations are sure to come. But I actually kind of like that extra weight. It's impossible for temptations to sin not to come. In this world, you will face temptation. That's just the way that it is. We should try to avoid temptation when we can. We should pray for God to keep us from temptation but we're not going to be ultimately able to avoid it. What Jesus does is he builds on that foundation of the inevitability of temptation by saying, ultimately, temptations are going to come, but make sure that you're not the person that the temptations come through. He literally says, but woe to the one through whom the temptations come. And Jesus isn't joking, he isn't exaggerating when he says, woe. When he warns, he adds a second warning. He says that it would be better for you to have a millstone, this 
massively heavy stone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones, to cause one of the children of God to sin. I mean, think about that. You have two options. One is you cause someone else to sin, to stumble, even to fall away from the Lord. And what's going to result from that would be worse than the other option of having a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea, than to really undergo like a mafia-style death, right? So Jesus isn't joking around here. I think what we need to see from this is that we need to not only take our personal righteousness seriously, we should also take the righteousness of our brothers and sisters very seriously. We're responsible for ourselves, right? We're responsible to pursue godliness and holiness ourselves, but there's also a way in which we truly are responsible for the pursuit of godliness and righteousness of the people that we are in community with. We should care about the other people not falling into sin, not being tempted, not stumbling. So we need to critically look at our lives. We need to say, are my actions and my words, are they doing more to promote godliness in other people? Or are they causing other people to stumble? Are my words and actions causing people to sin? So in dealing with the reality of temptation, we need to make sure that we are not the cause of other people's sin. We should also just recognize that we are going to sin against each other. It's going to happen. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. We're all going to sin against one another. We live in a fallen world, and it's just the reality as we struggle with our sin. So Jesus goes on and encourages them in verses 3 and 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. That's kind of watch yourself individually, but it's also plural. It's watch yourselves, and you can even translate it as watch out for one another. Pay attention to one another, and that's why he goes on to talk about one another with sin. Later, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. So in verse 4, you'll notice the words, against you. I think that qualifies this whole little section, verses 3 and 4. What Jesus is dealing with is sins against one another in community and the way of reconciliation for God's people in the church. So first, if somebody sins against you, what does Jesus say to do? He says to rebuke them, to admonish them. And this doesn't mean just stand them up in front of everybody and start yelling at them, right? But it does mean go up to this person in private and talk about their sin. Bring it up to them in a, in a loving but also in a firm way. And that might sound hard, and it really is. It's so much harder than what we normally do. It's so much easier to just, you know, have someone sin against you and then go complain about that person to five other people before you ever go and bring up the thing to them, if you ever even bring it up to the person who sinned against you. The work of admonishing someone, the work of bringing up sin to the person who sinned against you is so much harder than just gossiping. And then what Jesus says then is, if they repent, and he's kind of assuming repentance, which means if you are the person who has sinned against someone else, and they bring it up to you, what Jesus expects of you is that you repent of your sin right? 
that you confess your sin to that person, that you receive their admonition and you ask for forgiveness. And then when that happens, it says that the person who has sinned against needs to forgive them. And it even says, if they sin against you seven times in one day, even then you need to forgive them every time they come to you and they say, I repent. And when Jesus says seven here, he's not saying that that's like a limit, that if they sin against you eight times, then that eighth time you have no duty to forgive them. You can just kind of stay mad at them at that eighth time. No, he's using seven kind of in the idea of completeness. That as many times as they sin against you in any day, even in a single day, imagine that someone coming to you seven times for seven different sins in a single day and repenting. And you have to forgive this person. And again, those those are the two hardest things to do in that situation, to rebuke and to forgive. It's easier to gossip, to complain to other people, to slander, and it's so much easier to keep a, a, a list of the wrongs that someone has done against you than to forgive. But we need to do that hard work if we're to see reconciliation in the church. But we should also see that our reconciliation with one another follows a pattern that we see elsewhere in scripture. That we go and we rebuke, and we see repentance, and we see forgiveness. And what does that look like? It looks like conviction over sin, and repentance to God, and the forgiveness that God gives to us. There's a steady pattern of how sin is dealt with in the Bible, both in interpersonal sin and our sin against God. So we see, need to see that the way that we reconcile with each other should be a mirror of the way that God has reconciled us to himself and the way that he has forgiven us. If the holy and eternal God who is far more offended by our sin against him than we are by our sins against each other, if that God is so willing to forgive us when we repent, then we should be so willing to forgive others when they repent to us. And I think it's just such a shame and it's such a bad witness to the gospel and to the world around us when Christians are just as divided and as unwilling to reconcile with each other as the world around us. That shouldn't be the case. We know the grace and forgiveness of God. We must forgive one another and be reconciled and let it be a picture of the gospel to those who see us. So if there's any command in scripture that should make us cry out, Jesus, increase our faith, I think it's the command to forgive one another because it's so hard. We see in, in verse 5 that that's what the apostles cry out to Jesus. And so we're going to look at our second word for disciples. And that word is faith. So look with me to verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So we need to see here that the apostles' request to Jesus isn't necessarily a bad request. We should go to God and we should say, God, strengthen our faith. Help us to trust you more. It's a good thing. But what Jesus does is he shifts the attention away from the amount of faith to the action of faith. Even through a little bit of genuine faith in God, God can do great things, is kind of what Jesus is saying here. And there's this incredible contrast between 
the smallness of a mustard seed and the strength of a mulberry tree that drives home that point. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard countless times mustard seeds referenced in sermons, right? So we probably know mustard seeds are small. If you held it in the palm of your hand, it'd just be this little dot there. But on the other hand, mulberry trees were known in that day and in that part of the world for having very extensive root systems. They're very strong. There was even, we even found documents about uh, talking about how far away you should dig a well away from a mulberry tree because the root system was so wide that you wanted to be able to dig that well. So it's just kind of showing mulberry trees were known for, you know, not something you could just walk up to and pull out of the ground. And Jesus is saying, even a mustard seed of faith can uproot and throw into the sea this mighty mulberry tree. Now, I think we need to be really clear here about what Jesus is and isn't saying, lest we fall into that cistern that was dug near the mulberry tree. I grew up loving Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans in here? Yeah, I know you guys like Star Wars. It's great. I didn't love Star Wars because of the storyline. In fact, I, as a kid, I don't even think I understood the storyline, but I didn't care, right? I wanted a lightsaber so bad. And I wanted a lightsaber not so I could, like, fight my brothers. I wanted a lightsaber so I could chop down trees with it. We, we grew up heating our house with wood, and so all throughout the summers, we would spend our time chopping down big trees out of people's yards that were dead, and then we would be able to keep the wood. So we'd spend whole days where my dad would take the chainsaw out of this tree, we'd pull it over, and I'd get to take this axe and chop up wood, and then we'd haul it and put it in our basement. And heating our house with wood was always fun, especially on days like this. I remember nights when it got well below, well below zero that I could freeze water in my bedroom. So it was literally freezing. But I thought about how cool it would be in those summers when we were chopping down trees to have a lightsaber. Because I could go up to this big oak tree and just one swipe, straight through it. And the tree would fall. And then I'd just go over and just boom, 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 boom. Chop it straight up. Save a bunch of time, a bunch of effort. I wanted a lightsaber. So that's the first reason I loved Star Wars. But the second reason I loved Star Wars is that I wanted to be able to use the Force. Right? Everybody kind of, they watch Star Wars and they say, man, how cool it would be to be able to close your eyes and just like reach out your hand and Look at this X-Wing, the sound of the bog, and kind of lift it up out of the ground. I wish I could do that. You know, when I'm sitting at home and I'm thirsty, I could just, like, reach over and get a glass of water and have it fly over to me or something like that. And I remember when I was young, reading passages like this or hearing passages about moving mountains and things with faith, and I thought, so faith is kind of like the force. So if I just have enough faith and I close my eyes and I, I reach out, I can, like, go up to a tree, and I can just believe hard enough, and then that tree is going to fall over, right? How cool would that be? Man, I wish I had a mustard seed of faith so I could move trees. That'd be so great. But Jesus isn't talking about faith being like the force when he says you could uproot a mulberry tree and throw it into the sea. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying that if we have faith, that we can be enabled by God to do the things that he commands us to do, even if those things are far beyond our ability. This isn't, if you have faith, do whatever you want. You can, get, you can get riches in your own private jet and declare things into existence. No, it's saying by faith you are empowered and able to obey God. That's what he's talking about. And sometimes that means miraculous things. Hebrews 11 is kind of the long list, the, the hall of faith 
as people like to call it. In Hebrews 11, 29 through 30, we see a couple miraculous big things that were done by faith. It says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea is on dry land. And later, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. But more often, even in Hebrews 11, when it says by faith, what they did by faith was just simple obedience to God. By faith, we forgive our brother or sister. By faith, we resist temptation. By faith, we love our neighbor and love our God. The point is that having genuine faith shows itself through action in obedience to God and that God can work and show up even in the smallness and the weakness of our faith because God is mighty to accomplish what he tells us to do. So faith relies upon God and not some magical ability that we have. So our first two words for disciples, faith and sin. And the next word for disciples is service. Verses 7 through 10, Jesus gives a short parable. We've, I think we've probably had a parable almost every single week this fall. In the section that we're in, in Luke 9 through 19, there are 24 parables in 10 chapters. So a lot of parables. And here we have our parable for the morning. And interestingly, this parable is simply made up of three questions that Jesus asks. And to understand the parable, we have to understand the assumed answers to those three questions. Because Jesus himself doesn't actually answer the question for us. He assumes that his disciples, in hearing him ask these questions, would know what the obvious answer was. And so we have to know what's the obvious answer to the questions that he's asking. So let's look at this short parable, starting in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? The assumed answer is no. That's not the way it worked in that culture. Your servant worked out in the field, and then he would come in, and he would make the meal for you, and he would serve you. That was what was expected. So his first answer is no. We see that in the second question. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. The assumed answer is yes. Yes, this is how it works, at least in that culture. And then to finish out the parable, he asks one more question. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? The assumed answer is no. He doesn't thank the servant. The servant simply did his duty. That's what he was supposed to do. Why would the master thank the servant for him doing what was merely expected of him? And Jesus isn't necessarily like approving of all of the cultural practices of his day. He's using this as a picture, as an image for our obedience to God. And he explains it in verse 10. He says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So I want us to think about this for a moment. If we were to do everything that God had commanded, every little piece of it, everything in service to him that he requires, we would only ever be able to say, we're unworthy. We've simply done what you asked us to do. How many of us have obeyed all of the commandments of God and served him perfectly? 
Any, anybody here? Well, no, they would have walked out, actually. Sorry, my bad. They wouldn't even be in the room. So none of us, so none of us have the ability to go to God and require anything from him. He's never in our debt because of our service to him. We never deserve to go and sit at the table of our Lord. That's what he's talking about. Our work and our service before God is simply what he asks us to do. It's not meritorious. We don't merit anything before God. A common critique of my generation, millennials, right, is that we always feel like we deserve things, and we always, we always want affirmation, right? When we're young, we do our homework, and we need a gold star. We play a sport, we get last place, we deserve a trophy. We show up to work, and we do our job, then we deserve awards and promotion and recognition, right? Now, of course, that's a generalization, and we all know that all generalizations are false. So someone got that right. But we do need to be aware of the temptation to feel like our obedience to God earns us something before him, that we deserve God's blessing. But that's not the case. We never deserve a seat at God's table. And so this is where we need to remember something that we looked at a couple months ago in Luke chapter 12. So I want you to turn back just a couple pages with me to Luke 12, verse 37. Luke 12, 37, Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. There we go. I proved that the Bible is false because I found a contradiction, right? Jesus is saying, of course the master doesn't serve the servants. The servants are doing exactly what they should do, and they never earn anything. And then in Luke 12, he says, I'm going to serve my servants. I'm going to dress for service, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to serve them. This beautiful picture of Jesus, right? So is there a contradiction here? The answer is no. Actually, Luke 17 makes Luke 12 way more amazing because it reminds us that we do sit at the table of Jesus. We are invited to his feast, but it's not because of our merit. It's not because of our service to him. It's not because we have done something for God that has put him in our debt and he just needs to feed us. He needs to sit us at his table. He needs to bless us. No, it's that by his grace, he chooses to. By his grace, he rewards even our imperfect obedience of him. He calls us to himself and invites us to his feast and to his banquet. And that makes that good news of chapter 12 so much more amazing for us. That we don't merit anything from God, but that by his grace, he chooses to give us so much more than we could ever deserve in Christ. So we've seen three of the four words for disciples, sin, faith, and service. And the last word for disciples is thanksgiving. So look with me to verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
So you see Jesus entering this village. He's met by 10 lepers. They stand at a distance. We have to understand that leprosy in that day, it referred to a number of different, very contagious skin conditions that you could have. So according to the laws, even the laws of Leviticus, if you had leprosy, you were isolated from the community. You had to distance yourselves from other people. It was very alienating. It was very isolating. You were considered to be unclean. And so these people, these people with leprosy, these 10 people cry out to Jesus. They say, Jesus, heal us from this disease. Not just because the disease is challenging and rough, but because what it causes is also really challenging and really hard and humiliating and isolating and alienating. Jesus, have mercy on us. Heal us. And then what does Jesus do? Interestingly, he doesn't heal them instantly. He often heals just right away. People cry out for mercy. He heals right away. But he doesn't do that in this circumstance. He tells them to go to the priests. And what was going on is that if you look back in Leviticus with the laws concerning leprosy, if you were healed of your leprosy or your leprosy went away for some reason, you would go to the priest and the priest would declare that you were clean. They would look at your body, they'd look at the places where you had leprosy and they'd say, you are now clean. You can enter back into the community of the people of God, right? And so Jesus is saying, now go to the priests and go have them look at you. And as the lepers were on their way, before they left, even before they had been cleaned, it's that they were on their way to the priests, they were healed. I want us to just imagine that moment. They're walking to the priests. They're saying, Jesus sent us to the priests, but we're not healed yet. What's going to happen? They're walking. They look at their, maybe one of them looks down at their hand, or they look at their arm, or the place where they had had leprosy, and they see it's gone. So they say, hey, hey guys, look, look at your arms. Look at your legs. Your leprosy, it's gone. And they're all obviously excited by this. Can you imagine the joy of that? They would clearly be thankful to Jesus. They would clearly be grateful what Jesus had done. They'd probably go through the rest of their lives saying, remember that day that I saw Jesus, I met him, and he healed me from my leprosy. But one of the lepers responded differently than the rest. We don't know exactly what the other nine did, but we can assume from what Jesus told them to do that they went along to the priests. They probably ran home, said, look, I'm back. I'm healed. I can be with you. But one of them wasn't content with that. One of them wasn't content to just be declared clean and to return to his family. One of the lepers turned back. He ran to Jesus. He praised Jesus. Love this. He praised Jesus with a loud voice. We need more loud voice worshipers at Livingstone. Don't be ashamed. Just sing out. I don't care if you're on tune. Praise God with a loud voice. He fell at Jesus' feet. It's this posture of worship. And he gave him thanks. And I want to note just a couple of comparisons and contrasts here between the 10 lepers in verses 11 through 13 and the one leper in verses 14 through 16 that I think highlights some stuff for us. So look at, look at your Bible here. Pay attention to what's going on. Maybe you'll notice these as I mention them. In verses 11 through 13, you had 10 men with leprosy standing at a distance from Jesus, lifting up their voices to cry for healing. 
Now look at verses 14 through 16. You have one man, not 10, one man healed from leprosy. And where is he? He's not at a distance. He's at Jesus' feet. And he's lifting up his voice, but not just to cry out for Jesus' healing, but to praise God for the healing he had received. But I particularly love that spatial description that Luke included, that the 10 lepers had been far off. They had been at a distance. But this one leper responds and runs to Jesus and runs right to the feet of Jesus. Probably the first healthy person that he had been near in years is Jesus. And he goes to his feet and he worships him. What a great picture of alienation and isolation and then being reconciled and brought near to God through Christ. Because this man was isolated, not only because of his leprosy, which isolated from the community, but also it mentions that he was a Samaritan. So according to the Jews, he would have been alienated and isolated from the people of God as well. So this man at a distance is, is brought near and runs near to Jesus. And Jesus recognizes this. He says in verses 17 through 18, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, this Samaritan? The one man, as opposed to all of the others, responded to Jesus with thanksgiving and worship. And we need to be people that respond to Jesus with thanksgiving and worship. We don't want to be like those nine who are, you know, grateful for what Jesus has done, thankful for the benefits that Jesus has given us, but not to be truly praising and thankful. We need to be like the one man who ran to Jesus, who wanted to be near Jesus, who wanted to worship him and praise him instead of just being thankful for the benefits that he got. It's a natural response of our hearts to worship when we remember what has been done for us. And the posture of a disciple is the, the person at the feet of Jesus, falling down before him with wonder, with joy, with thanksgiving. But really, as we look at the last verse, the thanksgiving and the praise of the one man was really just an evidence of something much more significant. Look at the last verse. Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All 10 lepers were physically healed. But the last verse points out something truly unique about the one leper. He had saving faith. The other nine would have been declared to be clean by the priests. But this one man was declared to be saved by Jesus. If you were to have one of those two things, which would you want? Be declared clean by the priests or be declared saved by Jesus? That is such a better declaration to have said about you. If you look at the footnote in the ESV, if you have the ESV with you, you'll see the, that the phrase, he has made you well, can also be translated as has saved you. The Greek word that is used here comes from the root sozo, which most often in the New Testament is translated as save, and only occasionally is translated as healed. And here, it can mean healed, because he was physically healed. 
But I think in the context, it must mean more than physically healed because Jesus is pointing out something unique to this one man versus the nine. Those nine had been physically healed. So when Jesus says, you have been healed, he's clearly saying something more. I think he's bringing along with Sozo that idea of salvation. Jesus is saying, your faith has saved you. This man with all of his barriers, with leprosy, with being a Samaritan, the man who responded with faith and it manifested itself in praise and thanksgiving and he received the greatest blessing, not just return to the community, not just physical healing, but eternal salvation and reconciliation to God. And so for us, despite all of the barriers of our sin, despite all the things that would isolate us and alienate us from our God, let's run day in and day out to the feet of Jesus for faith, in faith for salvation. Let's respond day by day with thanksgiving and worship and praise for Jesus and what he's done for us. We're going to sin against one another. We're going to be sinned against. We're going to struggle with weak faith. We're going to fail to act in faith. We're going to struggle to serve God as we should. We're going to struggle to worship God as we should. We all desperately need our spiritual sickness to be healed. But how great is it that at the feet of Jesus, there's mercy, there's cleansing, and there's salvation. So run to him. Raise your voices in praise to him. Fall on your faces at his feet in worship and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for what you have done for us in your son, for sending him in the flesh to live for us, obey the law for us, to die on the cross for us, to take our sickness and sin upon himself, that he would rise for us, ascend into heaven for us, that he would reign as our king, and that he will return for us and heal us eternally from the sin that dwells in our hearts. Father, we praise you and thank you. Give us hearts that recognize what Christ has done and that respond with thanksgiving and with obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.